Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 53, The Hitchhike Antiheroes. Or the anti-hitchhike. Bad <laughs> bad jokes aside, what are we talking about today, Jonathan? We're talking about uh, protagonists that do not always make the most likable decisions. So in, instead of uh, having many uh, heroic qualities, you know, like bravery and selflessness and that kind of thing, we're talking about characters that are more driven by greed or uh, selfishness and that kind of stuff. Um, and how you can, you know, have an entire film that revolves around a character that does not have a lot of redeeming qualities. Right, because you have to remember, going back to story fundamentals, that the term protagonist just defines the character who drives the action. The person who maybe not even the story is centered on, but the person whose choices and decisions propel the plot forward. Not the most morally defendable character. Yeah, no. Typically not the most uh, best character in, unless maybe like it's the Wizard of Oz. Um, but often you start out with a character who is not very, uh, you know, morally defendable. And then they become that person that you would look up to, that you would imitate by the end. And not sometimes so in they this don't. Case. And that's your anti-hero. Right. <laughs> that's right. your anti-hero. Yes. Yeah, so. And these are all over the place. And we're going to try and expose those a little bit more for you. And we've talked about plenty of them on the podcast. Anytime we say the word neo-noir, we're probably talking about an anti-hero. Oh, yeah. Almost guaranteed. Very popular these days, um, especially among TV shows. You know, anytime a show is about a criminal, it's going to be an anti-hero. Um, almost everybody in Game of Thrones is, in a way, yeah. an anti-hero. Like, nobody's in that to be heroic. Um, except maybe Jon Snow. Everyone's in there in it to claim the throne. Um, so anyway, this is a very popular topic nowadays, but it hasn't. It's, it's always had its appeal to some people, and today we're going to talk about its appeal and usage by the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock, and what movies by Alfred Hitchcock are we going to talk about today, Jonathan? Yeah, so we start off in 1955 with To Catch a Thief, uh, with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, who we did not get to talk about last week or last uh, episode with our women episode. But Grace Kelly plays a big part in Hitchcock's canon. So we get to dive into that. Uh, and this is based on a book by the same name by David Dodge. And at the Oscars, it won Best Cinematography for a Color Film and was nominated for uh, Best Set Design and Costume Design for a Color Film. Because this is this is the time when we could break it up between color and black and white films. And it wasn't just color films that sometimes got a black and white release like Logan or Mad Max. Right, right. Um, and so the next film we're going to talk about is The Trouble with Harry from 1955, which is based on The Trouble with Harry, a book by Jack Trevor Story. Um, it's the only out-and-out Hitchcock comedy. Some others might be comedic in a weird way, but... Um, This is the only one that is definitely a comedy in the traditional sense of the comedy tragedy dichotomy of stories. And then we move on from there to 1958 and a film that is decidedly not comedic uh, with Vertigo uh, based on a book called From Among the Dead uh, by two French names that I'm not going to attempt. 
Um, <laughs> and this was nominated at the Oscars for Best Set Design and for Best Sound, but it did not win any. And it was actually uh, kind of just a mediocre release uh, in terms of reception. Like it it didn't flop or anything, but it didn't make a lot of money. Uh, and it's one of those that we've talked about a lot of times, uh, Slow Burn. And it is currently on the BFI's uh, Sight and Sound top uh top 50 films of all time and it is number one uh right now and after 50 years it beat citizen kane in 2012 uh and this is a poll of like film critics from all over the world it's probably it's considered one of the most uh reliable kind of film ranking polls yeah yeah it's maybe the best crafted of the hitchcock movies um Certainly has a lot of appeal, especially to our yeah, house it crowd. It fully encompasses like all the things we've been talking about that uh, Hitchcock uses over and over again, thematically and character-wise, and all that, and just kind of pushes them all to eleven, breaks some of those tropes, and then recreates them again. So we're gonna get into a lot of that uh, at the end of this episode. Oh yeah, yeah, it gets quite weird too. That'll be fun to talk about. Um, but before we get into the individual bra- breakdowns. Um, just a note on adaptations, because as you noticed, if you just listened to the three films we described, all of them are based on books. And this is the third week of the Hitchhike series, and almost all of them have been based on books and other stories. And I just wanted to make a note about this because it's something that stuck out to me, and it seems like an important comment to make. But Hitchcock is definitely a master visual storyteller. He's somebody who is very competent within more than competent he is like one of the genius cold standards of the filmmaking genre and the visual audio visual way of telling a story that is film but he's not a story originator he's not a guy who can sit down and come up with a story on his own um as well as the best of the best in that category and this brings me to another point that uh storytelling and story creating are separate but related talents, and sometimes we forget that, especially um, among a lot of us aspiring filmmakers who want to both create and then tell the stories um, that we we will eventually make into films. But it, it can be just as impressive to just visually tell a story that somebody's come right. up with in an incredibly skillful way. Um, sometimes the person sitting around the campfire telling a story in a very entertaining fashion is not the same person who came up with it. And the fact that those two talents are different isn't a bad thing. It's a very collaborative, um, it's a very collaborative, uh, art. And I don't say this because I think a lot of people have that misconception. Maybe it's just dispelling my own misconception about this. But I almost feel like whenever we have to read off that a movie is based on something else, um, it lessens it in some way. And part of that might have to do with the fact that nowadays um, there are so many adaptations that are done uh, just for the sake of a studio having a safe... Um, property that has a pre-established audience that they can trade off of. Um, and so we feel like adaptations might be slightly cheaper than an original story. But it's not always the case, and it ha- certainly hasn't always been the case. And uh, whether I'm dispelling your disbeliefs <laughs> or my own 
pre-misconceptions, then let them be dispelled about storytellers and story creators. Yeah, and you have to remember that um, a lot of these, uh, you know, the Quentin Tarantinos and Christopher Nolan types who do, uh, for the most part, write and direct their own material is fairly new phenomenon. I mean, they're not the only ones throughout history, but for a long time at the beginning of cinema, it was a lot of buying the rights to books and stage plays in order to put them on the screen. And there's some adaptation uh, involved with that. But, you know, that was the standard for a really long time, like throughout the golden age of Hollywood was to just buy existing uh, intellectual property and put it on on film. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything that that diminishes it. Uh, It just it's an interesting conversation. And we're going to have that conversation, um, especially with Vertigo, about things that uh, the way that Alfred Hitchcock decided to take the plot of the story and reveal it in the film uh, and change it in a way to make it more uh, compelling uh, on film. So, yeah, that's definitely uh, an interesting thing that you know, it's almost like a privilege these days to be able to write and direct your own material. But uh, that's not always the case. And that's why screenwriters have a job. Right, right. And we're glad they do, um, because sometimes the people who are coming are best at writing are not the best at directing. Um, and vice versa. And vice versa. So they need each other. Oh, right. So, Jonathan, do you want to take us into our first film of the day to catch a thief from 1955? Yes. And uh, I just want to kind of start out this whole episode that there's a lot of spoilers in these movies. Um, So definitely go watch these before we talk about them, because uh, it's a lot of fun to just experience Hitchcock unveiling the story um, and not listen to us drone on about them and spoil them all before you watch it. Anyway, To Catch a Thief uh, starts with a series of um, burglaries of jewelry And then we are introduced to Cary Grant's character, who we learn uh, used to be a jewel thief before um, World War II. And then he ended up being uh, getting involved in the war. And since then, uh, he has not been uh, stealing, which is what he tells the other characters around him. Although some of them don't believe him. Some of them are a little bit more inclined to believe him um, until. uh, And the other part about all this is that. Basically, these burglars are being done in the same way that Cary Grant's uh, character, John Roby, the cat, uh, this is his little robbery nickname. Um, They're being done in in his fashion with his signature uh, way that he steals jewelry or whatever. So everyone thinks that he's doing these and he keeps telling people that, no, no, I'm not doing them. I'm not doing them. He ends up in a conversation with a, a jewelry insurer who obviously has a lot of interest in this uh this string of jewelry robberies because he's going to end up having to pay all these people back, which he does not want to do. So Cary Grant offers his services. Since this person is using all of his techniques, uh, Cary Grant believes that he will be able to catch uh, the real perpetrator uh, because he can think like them. Yeah, and just so, like the title of a movie. Right. So there's a great um, moment where the... Uh, the jewelry insurer hands him a list of the the people with the most valuable jewelry that that are insured with him. And so then we have this moment of, OK, now Cary Grant has this information. He knows where all the most valuable jewels are. And we know that he used to be a jewel thief. So what's going to happen? Um, 
and he ends up going to dinner with one of the families who has the most expensive jewels, uh, which is a mother and daughter. So Grace Kelly and her mom are there and uh, they end up having uh, Cary Grant and Grace Kelly end up falling in love uh, through a series of circumstances. And she catches on that he is the cat and she thinks that he's the one doing all of these robberies and she's excited about that and she wants in and she wants to be part of it and he keeps denying that he is John Robbie because he told them a different name and all that uh so basically to make this very long synopsis shorter we go through uh them planning to catch the jewel thief at this ball and uh and we find out who it is and uh it all gets wrapped up but again it's about the characters and the journey that we're on throughout this. Right. So the, the lesson is kind of that to catch a thief, it takes a thief, or maybe that's just mm-hmm. the, the kitschy plot title. Um, but anyway, it, it definitely, so there's this interesting mix here because Cary Grant is accused and chased by the police, which establishes him as a wrong man but he doesn't 100% fall into the wrong man archetype that Hitchcock mm-hmm. has already established in so much of his work because most of uh, most of if not all of Hitchcock's wrong men um are either are average guys man. or yeah. completely innocent guys he actually has a movie called Just the Wrong Man which is borderline documentary uh starring Henry <laughs> Fonda um and that that guy is so sympathetic. He is the pinnacle of um, Hitchcock's The Wrong Man as an archetype. Maybe not as a film, but as an archetype. He is completely sympathetic. Cary Grant is not that. Cary Grant kind of just wants to be left alone. Um, he's kind of like an older retired thief Um who just wants to be left alone. He's very self-interested. Allegedly retired. Allegedly retired, right. Um, because that's a, that's one of the main elements of this whole thing, is that the audience doesn't know if Cary Grant is actually doing these robberies or not. There are several instances where, uh, you know, Cary Grant is has gotten on with this mother and daughter, and then we see he's awake, and then we see he's awake in a different position the next morning, and suddenly the jewels are gone. And so we're like, ooh, okay. So he's in a very good position to have stolen these. Um, but did he do it? Uh, so that's the interesting part about this is that he is a wrong man and an anti-hero at the same time. Because for most of the film, we think he's an anti-hero until the real robber is uh, unmasked, literally. And we find out that he was a wrong man to the audience. Uh, oh, yeah. So there's a lot of layers in this. Yeah, yeah. And just to define what makes him an anti-hero is that um, he's, he's not even... I mean, yes, he's trying to get out of this wrong accusation, but it's not he's like kind of he's a retired innocent. anti-hero. Yeah, right? He's not doing anything wrong at the moment, but it's not like he's completely clean either. Like, he has um assorted past he has um and and you can tell in his character traits too throughout the film that he he kind of fits this anti-hero archetype as he and he's not he's not repentant about it one of my favorite oh, scenes yeah, no, in the he's movie, not sorry at all right one of my favorite scenes in the movie is his conversation with the insurance agent where he starts off by saying 
uh, like the insurance agent is trying to give him the benefit of the doubt the whole time. And he's like, so, you know, after you got involved in the war and we're trying to make up for things, you gave all the money back, right? He was like, nope, I kept it all for myself. I wanted the money and so I kept it. <laughs> and then he goes on to make uh, this pretty compelling case for the insurance agent to be like being a thief just through little petty things like stealing stuff from a, uh, a hotel room and stuff like that. He's like, oh, no, that's not a big deal. He's like, but you are a thief. So you're just an amateur thief, but it'll help you to connect with us professionals. And that's one of the lines. And so in that scene, he's essentially turned this antihero uh, idea onto the audience. So now the audience is implicated in anything that Cary Grant does because we are somewhere on the same ladder with him. Yeah, you think about all those hotel pins you've taken, you've taken over the years. Oh no, what will I ever do exactly. with this Holiday Inn pin? <laughs> I guess <laughs> I'm an anti. Money. <laughs> I guess I'm an antihero now. Um, yeah, especially so, if you've pirated to catch a thief and you're watching it. Oh gosh, <laughs> that would be <laughs> that would be a meta did. level. That would be a meta level. Yeah, so he he is definitely an antihero in the sense he's selfish, he's unrepentant, he's self motivated, um, in a self defensive manner and not a noble manner, not a heroic manner. Even though he's the protagonist of the film, who ends up actually doing a public good by the end of the movie by catching this thief, um, and then he tries to run away and like hide his face, like oh man, I yeah, did a good thing, yeah. <laughs> but another interesting thing in this whole uh, you know character development is Grace Kelly's character and the fact that she, first of all, pegs him as uh, the notorious uh robber uh and then is not like hey i'm gonna report you to the police because i'm pretty sure that you're stealing all these jewels but it's like hey let me help you case your next joint this is fun and uh, oh yeah she's into bad guys oh yeah yeah and so she kind of becomes this anti-hero because regardless of whether or not he is stealing the jewels she thinks he is and she likes it <laughs> so then she becomes um, we're like, oh wow! So she's just fine with uh, thievery and um, she's like uh, anti- you know felonies and stuff like that. She's like the anti-heroine of the of the picture. It's she's pretty- like a potential anti-hero. She doesn't really do anything, but she's okay with doing the wrong thing, which is uh, it, a really interesting the, element. Until the moment it affects her. Yeah, when her when, mom's when she jewels thinks, get stolen. When she thinks that uh, Cary Grant has stolen her mother's jewels. And again, that's a very self-motivated reaction. Oh, it's okay to steal other people's, um, other people's stuff, but if you steal my stuff, oh no, oh no. Which, and she literally tells Cary Grant that she's like, "Here, let's steal from this person and not Mother, because she really likes you, and that would be a pity." Yeah, yeah. And in a way, that is almost like a reflection on the audience because we're sitting there enjoying this story about cat burglars. We think that like all of this highfalutin jewel thievery is really entertaining and we love hearing about it. But oh my gosh, if that ever happened to us, we would blow our tops. Right. We would we would hate the jewel thief. We wouldn't find him entertaining at all. Um, Except for the mother, which just to throw in her into this whole mix. Oh, God, she's, she's like, a character. <laughs> right. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, Grace Kelly is the blonde in this film and her mother is part of this. We talked about how mothers play into all this. She's kind of more on the fun side of mothers in Hitchcock films because 
she's kind of going for Cary Grant, too. She she gets all excited about him stealing stuff. She's like, oh, I don't really care about the jewels. They're insured, which, of course, isn't good for our insurance agent character. Um, but she's just kind of along for the ride. And then she ends up covering for Cary Grant when he slips out the window. Um, and so she is less upset about her jewels being stolen than her daughter is. Yeah, yeah. Which we should talk about this. It all leads to a kind of a romp type mood like it. Yeah, this whole film is is much lighter. Yeah, it's not a comedy. It's it's I wouldn't say it's a comedy, although there are plenty of comedic moments. Um, But but it's along the lines of North by Northwest. Yeah, it's not nearly as intense as um, Vertigo. If anything can be, which we'll get get to, Um, but it's not, it's not nearly as dark as Marnie um, or, or Vertigo or one of the movies that we're going to be talking or any of the movies really we're going to be talking about next week when we talk about psychos, Um, which, oh boy, that's going to be intense, but nobody, (laughs) nobody in this film is a psycho. They're, they're all very self-motivated people. Um, they're, they're all in their own ways and to some degree an anti-hero. And I feel like them all kind of being self-motivated anti-heroes makes it fun to watch because you don't feel like anybody's really being victimized. Um, if everybody is victimizing each other in this very lighthearted, rompy kind of way. And Cary Grant brings that almost just naturally with, with his performances, Um, and it's really interesting in the, uh, and I'm going to come back to the Hitchcock Truffaut book, um, because I got to, it's a big driving point of, uh, you know, basically any kind of Hitchcock study is that interview with Truffaut. If you guys Um, are wondering, Truffaut paid him to plug this. (laughs) Right. From the grave. He didn't pay Uh, me though. That's why you don't hear me talking about it. (laughs) I'm, uh, sponsored by Francois Truffaut himself, but (laughs) (laughs) they, they talk about, uh, like the way that Hitchcock uses Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and, and Truffaut's like, you know, you, you could almost think about them as interchangeable, but you use them to very different effect. And we talked about before how uh, Jimmy Stewart was almost in North by Northwest and how different of a film that would have been. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing with To Catch a Thief. And we'll talk, we could talk about that again with Vertigo because putting Jimmy Stewart in To Catch a Thief, like it would have been very similar, but there's a def- definitely a different quality to Jimmy Stewart. It probably would have been a performance similar to the remake of uh, the the Man Who Knew Too Much, in just the way that Jimmy Stewart portrayed it. But it's not as it's not quite as charming as what Cary Grant is able to bring to the table in films like this and North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah, because the the idea of a film star in uh, the 1950s, uh, the, that late studio era. Um, and even to some extent these days, um, but a film star wasn't nearly, they, they weren't chameleons in the way that a character actor would be. They would more or less they have, play they themselves. They built a brand in yeah. modern vernacular. <laughs> yeah, they, they had a brand. They had branding. Oh gosh. Um, could you imagine if they had Instagram back then? <laughs> but yeah, they, they built a brand and they kind of were themselves to some extent in every role they played um, much more than a supporting actor um, or, a, or a character actor would be. So that's why in every single Cary Grant movie, like he doesn't disappear into a role. He's very much Cary Grant in every role yeah. that he is. Both Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart are very, 
very good examples of that actually they're they don't they don't change very much and it's interesting to see um them in different films that are uh have very different tones to them because it's putting a different spin on their same old mannerisms so the mannerisms of Cary Grant in To Catch a Thief come off very aloof, whereas in Bringing Up Baby, they come off as very zany and charming. Um, yeah. The mannerisms... And then to push it a little farther, like in a movie we haven't talked about yet, but probably will at some point, a Charade, where you're really not sure how far along this criminal uh, line he is. He's even a little darker than in To Catch a Thief. Yeah, yeah, and the um, the very uh, idiosyncratic mannerisms and even just speech patterns of Jimmy Stewart are incredibly different in a film like It's a Wonderful Life, where they make him seem charming and disarming and almost bumbling in a way, um, even though he's a very smart character in that film. Um, whereas, mm-hmm. and there's in, a lot of emotional range in that film too, but it's very different oh, yeah. emotional range. Yeah, yeah, it's just all put through this Jimmy Stewart filter, and those same mannerisms are present in all of his films. So those same mannerisms in something like Vertigo, which we're about to talk about here in a minute, or um, the Otto Preminger film, uh, The Anatomy of a Murder, are much different. They seem much more calculated, uh, much more intent and in a way much more sinister once we get to vertigo um which is fascinating um but yeah but yeah it's fascinating to see these different spins put on these different brands um that uh stars had of the day and the way that would affect a film like uh like a hitchcock film who um wasn't all about trying to change his his actors into something they weren't he he clearly has yeah, an established pattern for working with well i mean he i think by that i meant he very much liked working with the same people over and over whether or not he liked it or just did it out of habit um but he did love part working of that Harry grant yeah 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 and i feel like part of that is a working relationship of course we've talked about that a lot but also Hitchcock is famously a director who has to see the film before it's made. So he has to be able to visualize every aspect of um, his film. And so I I don't know how much it plays into it, but if it's an actor he's worked with before, it's probably easier for him to visualize them in the role. Um, and if it's an actor he hasn't worked with before, uh, you know, there are lots of stories like uh, with Tippi Hedren we talked about with the birds last week of him basically transforming them into the character that, or the actress that basically he wanted in the role, like turning them into something that he wanted. And he talks about that a lot, especially with actresses. Um, Yes, exactly. And we'll talk about that with vertigo, but he, he talks about in his interview again, um, several actresses that he basically would have a plan. So he would hire them for a series of movies and he would put them in roles and basically systematically create a persona for them for the the audience to identify them with so i think he even did that with uh grace kelly and we're gonna talk about her a little bit more in rear window but giving her you know like progressively changing her character into what he wanted the audience to see her as um which is a really interesting uh kind of long-term plan for a director that you don't hear about a whole lot 
Yeah, yeah. It, that could be a big boost to a career, too, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, a director taking you more or less under his wing, because I don't see Alfred Hitchcock as the nurturing type, but also wing, birds, pun. Anyway. Um, <laughs> a little bit more in Alfred Hitchcock's case, like under his scalpel feels like a better illustration. Right, right, right. And, it, 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 and as we've talked about before, it sounds like, and as we'll see with The Trouble with Harry, it sounds like uh, Alfred Hitchcock has a very dark, very cruel sense of humor um, delivered in a very dry, British, flat tone, um, which I think made him seem meaner than he was. From from all intents and purposes, it sounds like half the things he said were meant to be jokes, um, but weren't taken as such. And of course, yeah. I've never met the man. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but, but that, that can be an intense personality to be around as we've heard from different, uh, from different actors and kind of along those lines of Hitchcock's idea of, uh, female characters again is, uh, something that he describes in the way that he likes his women portrayed, which is a strange way of putting it, but he talks about uh, in several different interviews the way that he likes the uh, the sexiness of a woman to be discovered. Uh, he didn't like uh, actresses like Bridget Bardot or Marilyn Monroe who just kind of like flaunt their their sexuality. Um, just kind of there's no there's no surprise to it. You know what's there and you know what you're getting. Um, but especially in this film, you can see with Cary Grant the what he often describes as like the English woman sensibilities where she's very cold and uh, a little bit aloof in public, but in private is a very different matter. And there is a definite example of that in To Catch a Thief, where Cary Grant has met uh, Grace Kelly at dinner and we see her in profile and she's kind of she doesn't say very much. She's kind of just like eyeing him calculatingly and sizing him up and all that. And then he walks her to her room and before he can even say anything, she kisses him just out of nowhere. So now you're like, whoa, where did that come from? So it's just kind of like it layers the character immediately because it's like, okay, that's not who I thought she was. But now I see these different sides of her, um, which is a really interesting thing. And the other uh, female character we haven't talked about yet uh, is referring back to our, our last episode, the uh, dark haired, in this case, redheaded rival character who is a French girl in this film. But there becomes this rivalry between Cary Grant and uh, Bridget Auber as the actress. Um, and spoilers, again, I already put that disclaimer out there, but she ends up being the jewel thief. So not only is she the rival to Grace Kelly, but she also ends up being the rival to Cary Grant because she has worked with him closely before and now is pinning all of her robberies on him. So that is just another element to all of this. Right, right. More characters acting uh, selfishly, but not in like a super dislikable way, more like a super entertaining way that they right. keep acting selfishly, which is good. You want that in a, in a film. And we've um, hit all three of our, our uh, Hitchcock female stereotypes again. So check that off the list. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and as far as a director uh, signatures go, Alfred Hitchcock's are maybe some of the strongest out there. Um, maybe Wes Anderson is up there in terms of just being able to look like at one frame of a 
or one detail of a story or one frame of a mm-hmm. film and being able to know like, Oh, that's, that's a, that's a film by so-and-so. Um, they both have very, very strong styles. A lot of, a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, Hitchcock filtered into Wes Anderson's work by, uh, by the way. Um, and most and a prominent lot of directors that, th- you know, their name were, uh, influenced by Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Wes Anderson's case, a lot of it gets filtered through like the French new wave and Bogdanovich, to Wes Anderson and then probably the next generation of filmmakers will have Hitchcock influences both from Hitchcock that have been filtered from Hitchcock through the French New Wave through Wes Anderson to them anyway um, whoever has to do a podcast about film like 200 years from now is going to have a real hard time of it good luck with that I'm anyway, glad this is not an art history podcast I'll just put yeah, it that way yeah. like painting yeah no we, we we're doing this at a good time you know there's <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of film history out there to be covered and to dive into and we're living at this interesting point in in the the history of the medium where everything's digitizing and there's the internet and anyone can do it in their backyard but that doesn't mean anyone can really do it well um, but we also don't have so much history of it that. It's just all a wash, like art history, where yeah. where you have to specialize in like a decade, or like one group a of style, yeah. or like one group of people in like one one country at one point in time. Like, imagine if the only kind of film you could study would be French New Wave film. I don't care how much you like French New Wave <laughs> film, you would go crazy only studying French New Wave film. Um, so yeah, no large canon but manageable. Good time in film history. Anyway, moving on uh, to The Trouble with Harry, but not so fast. Let's talk about color. Um, (laughs) And not just because I do that professionally um, so that I can eat pizza and afford um, movie rentals for this podcast, Um, but also because it's really fascinating. To Catch a Thief is a Technicolor film from maybe the golden era of Technicolor or the start of it. Um, from the 50s this is one of to the Hitchcock's 70s. most beautiful films to me it is really gorgeously yeah, shot yeah no that color cinematography film uh, uh, award is well deserved it yeah. is gorgeous and there's a lot of really prominent green throughout this entire film that is just fantastic especially in the night shots to kind of go with this cat cat theme Cary Grant's going around in black across rooftops with green kind of like the green eyes of a cat um really beautiful of course they're shooting along like the french coast of the mediterranean so all the landscapes are already gorgeous and then you throw these big sand beaches in there and all this water and all this sky and um as you said uh or as you mentioned to me jonathan before we started uh they, they did something to get the blues just right in this film yeah so there's uh a a filter because basically Hitchcock did not like a lot of the night scenes at this time period, just in general, uh, were day for night. And we've talked about that a little bit before. Um, but Hitchcock didn't like the way that the sky always turned out to be this very like royal blue, um, and stuff like that. And it kind of gives it away. So he ended up putting a green, green filter onto the camera, which makes the ground and everything, kind of seem more green but it gets the sky uh darker by taking the greens out of the blue there um and hitchcock said he wasn't totally happy with it but it was closer um and i think it's really interesting because one of the things about hollywood night scenes is that 
Hollywood basically invented the blue night idea, the idea that uh, moonlight is blue when it's not, you know, it's literally reflected daylight. So even though the sky is darker and it has a blue cast to it, the light that actually comes at night is just white. It's just normal light. So the fact that we kind of associate blue light with moonlight is totally fabricated. And, you know, why not make it green? And like you said, it has thematic uh, implications in this film. And it's just really interesting and really uh, it's kind of like a signature of this film. Like when I think of this film, I think of that, uh, you know, green rim light and just really dark shadows for the night scenes. Um it's it's unique amongst Hitchcock films and pretty much all other films. Yeah, no, I love that. It is its own thing. There's something to be said for going with what always works, like a blue night, but there's also something to be said for going your own direction and making um, a bold, strong choice that is motivated um, in a certain direction that uh, whether or not it works as best as the other choice would have makes the makes the final product, the final story, the final film more unique and more memorable. Um, I think that's what I'll probably remember most about this film as we get months and much farther away from me having watched it um, will be the colors and the the fireworks I saw and the sea I saw yeah. um, and the, the greens across the rooftop. Um that I saw that were just so striking and so different from everything else that they stuck in my head. And that's something admirable about a film. If you can get something stuck in your head about it. Um, and, Oh, and of course I would be amiss to not mention the cameo in the film at, and we are going to start including time codes for you guys in case you really want to look them up. Um, <laughs> so at nine minutes and 40 seconds, um, Cary Grant has just slipped away from the police by parking his car and slipping onto a little, little French bus. I don't, I didn't even recognize it as a bus. I thought it was like a VW van, um, until we cut to inside of it and it's a bus and I guess French buses are tiny. Anyway, um, sitting next to Grant on the bus is Alfred Hitchcock, um, at nine minutes and 40 seconds. Again, if you would like to look that up. Um, oh, the other interesting thing about that is that on one side of Cary Grant, there is a woman with a bird in a cage. And on the other side is Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah. this film is well before the birds uh, came out. So I thought that was just kind of like a little providential uh, scenic moment. Well, you don't make a movie about birds, Jonathan, if you don't like birds. <laughs> That's true. I mean, well, the birds were the bad guys, so... You you have to feel strongly about birds one way or the other. Yeah, but to Alfred Hitchcock, everyone was a bad guy. That's true. Very true. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of everyone being a bad guy, let's talk about The Trouble with Harry from 1955. The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead. Um, the title of the film is just The Trouble of the ha with Harry, but The Trouble with Harry turns out to be, yes, that he is dead. Um, he is a strange man in this small Vermont town. I don't actually remember if it is specifically vermont but it might as well be it's got beautiful rolling hills and wonderful fall trees with their nice red and gold leaves um and a very small population uh in fact we only see one or two houses over the course of the entire film and we only meet like four or five characters maybe definitely less than ten um and we open on this young boy with a water gun or a fake gun of some sort some kind of toy gun 
uh, finding this dead body and running off to tell his mom. The dead body, as you have definitely figured out by now, is Harry. And everybody seems to think that they've killed Harry. The first person uh, to think they've killed the body is Captain Wiles, who is out hunting rabbits, um, almost like a odd uh, cartoon series that you might have heard of. Um, <laughs> and stumbles upon <laughs> And stumbles upon this dead body and is sure, completely sure, that he has shot this man. Um, on accident. He, he, uh, on accident. And instead of um, doing, you know, anything else about it, he's like, oh, I should, I should probably bury him. So he starts to pick him up when suddenly this little boy and his mother come up the hill. The little boy who has already found the body and is showing his mom. Um, so he hides in the bushes and the uh, woman goes away uh, after telling her son not to worry about the body. And that woman is... Yeah, she says things like, uh, or he, he says, but mommy, will he wake up? And she's like, I hope not. And so let's go get <laughs> right. some hot chocolate or something like that. Right, she does right. not care at all, but we're she knows already, him. We're already very deep into the dark humor uh, going on. Um, but anyway, that is Jennifer Rogers, played by Shirley MacLaine, um, who also thinks as we find out over the course of the film, that she's killed the man who was her estranged husband. Um, they go into the backstory. They, like, weren't actually in love. He, like, married her out of obligation after her his brother, her, uh, her pa- deceased husband, passed away. But anyway, she thinks she's killed Harry by hitting him over the head with a milk bottle. Um, so she's not very upset about him being dead and is perfectly fine with letting him rot on the hill. So after Jennifer Rogers leaves, um, the captain goes back to trying to bury the body. He picks it up by his feet. It's a very funny pose. Um, anyway, along comes Miss Gravely, uh, an older woman of the town. Um, and she notices the body and is just kind of having this pleasant conversation with the captain while the captain is standing there holding the dead man's legs, um, asking him how he's going. Um, she doesn't seem overly shocked by this body. And that's because she also thinks she's killed the man. Um, apparently, after being hit on the head with the milk bottle by Mrs. Rogers, um, Harry was stumbling around the woods and Miss Gravely thought he was attacking her. So she took off the her old hiking boot and whacked him in the head with it, assuming that she killed him now finding his body. Um, and so that is the summation of all of the characters who have uh, actually thought, who actually think they've killed Harry. Um, spoiler alert, none of them killed Harry. Um, but we also have a couple other characters that we should introduce. One of them is Sam Marlowe, who is an artist who lives in the town and reminds me of no one so much as the artist in the Iron Giant, um, except <laughs> like a couple decades beforehand. Um, living in the small town, being an artist, he just makes very odd paintings, puts them in the local convenience store, and then no one ever buys them. Um, except there's this comedy routine that uh, the um, this this rich guy in a limo stops by the convenience store, sees the pangs and keeps trying to buy them. But, uh, Sam Marlowe's always too busy to, 
um, notice him or pay attention to him as he's busy with other things. Um, Which other things are either digging up or burying this body. (laughs) Yes, yes, as we'll get into. And of course, there's also the doctor who plays um, kind of a minor role, but he is reading a book, walking around the hills, and he will occasionally kind of walk by the body. Um, There's once or twice that he just steps right over it without noticing it because he's so engrossed in his book. I think he trips over it once and apologizes to it and then just moves on without without even noticing um of course there is the deputy sheriff of the town who's kind of like the antagonist in a way um he's like a cold he's like the only one without a sense of humor in the town um but it helps that he's a little bit bumbling at the same time he's very like kind of country oh yeah he couldn't be competent or this movie couldn't work exactly Um, um and of course there is uh the convenience store owner who um is a friend to the artist and it kind of just acts as a place where some of the action takes, um, takes place. A lot of this film feels like it would work very well as a stage play. Like there are, yeah, there's there's like four settings and you just kind of go back and forth. Anyway, over the course of the film, uh, these characters all learn about the, the dead body, except for the sheriff. Um, but our four main ones are the captain who thinks he's killed the dead, uh, killed Harry by shooting him. Uh, Mrs. Rogers, who thinks he's killed, who thinks she's killed Harry by hitting him over the head with a milk bottle. And Miss Gravely, who thinks she's killed Harry by whacking him in the head with her hiking boot. And Sam Marlowe's just kind of along for the ride, uh, partially because he's kind of friendly with the captain and also partially because uh, he's got a thing for Miss Mrs. Rogers now that um, now that they've met. Um, and yeah. of course there's some romance storylines that happen over the course of the film, but there's also a lot of stuff to dig into because they dig a hole for the body, bury the body, un, uh, exhume the body and then bury the body again about three times, maybe four. Yeah, they keep finding excuses. They're like, okay, so no one is really to blame. Let's just bury him and no one will worry. And then they keep finding like reasons like, oh man, we should get the body up. Oh no, no, no. We could just keep it down there. All right. Cause they keep revealing more information about you know who had a hand who saw him before he died and all this kind of stuff and so it's just the most ridiculous uh romp that involved a whole town and a dead body (laughs) yeah it's fairly well structured um as they as they dig into the mystery and i will just keep saying that pun i don't care um (laughs) as they dig into the mystery and unravel the plot which could easily suffice as the entire plot to this um to this film and it could be a um it could be a drama then they instead <laughs> constantly dig and redig up this body and add these wonderful comedic beats and yeah, at that and this point is... like the entire thing is a comedy like everybody's just so deadpan about it um the entire thing matches all of the stories i've ever heard about hitchcock's sense of humor yeah, exactly. And this is actually um, one of the things he says about it is that it was his attempt to prove that uh, British humor can sell in America because it's very dry and it's pretty dark and uh, like taken at face value. It's pretty dark, but it's just so lighthearted and fun when you're watching it. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's the ultimate example of a thing that Hitchcock says a lot, which is that dialogue is something that the characters are doing while the action is taking place. In other words, he kind of, he loves 
any time that he can contrast the tone of the spoken part of the film and the visual part of the film. And he gives like basically his quintessential example of that is that meeting between the captain and Miss Gravely and uh, this moment where they are literally making a date while trying to cover up this dead body and she sees it. She knows that it's a dead body and she's, and he explains like, Oh no, no, no. I accidentally uh, killed him. It's okay. I'm just going to bury him and no one will have to know. Um, and uh, he, uh, honestly, the captain uh, reminds me of Hitchcock a lot in that uh, Hitchcock had this famous fear of cops. And that's like a majority of the motivation of the captain is that he's, he doesn't want to get involved with the wrong cops. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's afraid. He's trying to prevent being the wrong man. Which, and in doing so, becomes the anti-hero. Yeah. yeah, it becomes, basically, if they found out after he buries the body, then he has committed a felony. <laughs> then it's even worse for him because yeah. he's not the wrong man anymore. So um, so if being an anti-hero is, do, is becoming the protagonist by, um, by some means other than nobility, typically selfishness or self-interest, mm-hmm. then... Uh, our captain becomes an anti-hero when he decides to hide the body. Like instead, immediately right off the bat of this movie. It. Yeah, when Miss Gravely becomes an anti-hero when she doesn't immediately tell the captain her story. Like when she walks right. up to the captain and she decides to hide it. And eventually, of course, all the characters tell their stories. Otherwise, the movie wouldn't work. Um, and she immediately decides to hide it. That's her anti-hero moment. Um and also not telling him to tell the police or telling the police on him. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, uh, of course, Miss Rogers, when she finds the body, she just, she's totally okay with it. She wanted this guy. Yeah, she's happy about it. I don't know if I would say she wanted this guy dead, but she's perfectly okay with it. Yeah. Um, and she's not going to make a fuss about it. I love one that of she her, One of her lines in the film is, I don't care what you do with Harry, just as long as you don't bring him back to life. (laughs) We're like, okay, got it. Well, we understand your motivation. Um, (laughs) And of course, Sam Marlowe, the artist um, who is maybe the closest thing to uh, actual hero in the film because he decides to help his friends when they're in trouble. Right. Um, Except even he has very selfish motivations. (laughs) He's in it to get with the, uh, with the single mom. Miss Rogers, uh, and and eventually over the course of the film, like you know the the romance lines between him and Miss Rogers and the captain Miss Gravely develop, um, and they all do become friends. Um, and you know after this, they'll be really good friends. If there's if there's one way to become really good friends with somebody, you know, have have to bury a body with them three times. Yeah, that'll that'll really do it. Getting um, away with murder, almost literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But his, but you know, his motivations are pretty selfish. And even if they weren't, even if they were just uh, nobly wanting to help his friends out of a tough situation, he does very bad things to make it happen. And I think, I think that's a pretty good definition of antihero too. If you are, if you are, have noble intentions, but you do bad things because of those noble intentions, I think that might make you an antihero, or maybe more accurately, like an anti-villain. That's a thing. Yeah, I think we could I think we can roll with that. I think there is one scene though that we should point out specifically is that there's this there's this contrast between, you know, just the 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 normal character of all of these characters and 
the fact that they are burying and re re exhuming this body over and over again. Um, and because there's, there's the one scene where the millionaire finally gets in touch with Sam and, uh, he's like, how much do you want for these paintings? I'll pay what, whatever you want. And Sam says, everybody tell me what it is that you want. What, what do you want? And I'll, uh, so I'm going to pay in, you know, a new suit and fishing rod or a new, uh, pair of shoes and all the stuff. So it's like this very selfless moment while they've been like, they've got dirt on them from literally burying the, and unburying this body. And what it reminds me a lot of is, uh, arsenic and old lace. Like I'm constantly making connections between these two movies because, our whole thing in Arsenic and Old Lace is following these two old ladies who are willfully murdering old men because they think they're doing him a, them a favor. Uh, and But we're rooting for them the whole time. And it's just this this logical break. They they have put this logic in their heads that, uh, you know, that convinces themselves that murdering these, these men is good uh, in the same way that here it's like, Okay, it's the best thing to do to uh, hide this body from the police and stuff like that. And I think it's just this interesting fact that so many times comedies uh, rely on antiheroes in order to get the point across. We just never think of them that way because there are so many Deadpools and stuff like that out there that look totally different than, uh, you know, Josephine Hull in Arsenic and Olays. Right, right. Although, I mean, Deadpool is wearing a mask most of the time, so... Okay, that's true. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a different kind of antihero. But I think if we're taking antihero by its definition, like a lot of uh, comedy films and this kind of um, screwball comedy, uh, you know, falls in that category. And we just don't think about it because of the way that it's presented. Uh, and so it's, it's just an interesting, like different when you think about antiheroes. You're not thinking so much about these really lighthearted movies that make you laugh a lot um, because you're not thinking about the fact that you're laughing at people like trying to get away with felonies. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just it's this it's this presentational. Yeah, you thing. certainly don't want to tell a, a comedy about a competent person with good intentions. Yeah. And and there's something else that uh, Hitchcock talks about that I, I want to touch here, but we're going to talk about Psycho next time is this fact that uh Psycho is made with a certain amount of uh, comedy to it um, because it's this very, very dark story. And yet, if he were portraying it in the way that it should be, it would be a documentary and we would be given all the facts and they would all be laid out and we would uh, go through all of these things and see what happened uh, in order and all that kind of stuff. And it would just be really depressing. Um, but... If you put it, if you put a little bit of this, um, you know, spin on it, this like in some ways comedic, dark comedic tone to it, it makes it much more interesting and it keeps the audience involved. Uh, and that's one of the things that Hitchcock is so good at doing is even in Psycho and some other movies like uh, another antihero movie, Frenzy, is he makes you afraid for the bad guy for the villain and uh hitchcock is really good at using suspense no matter what the motivations of the character that we're watching are and the trouble with harry is just kind of like an extreme example of that because uh, we care about them because for the most part they're all good people except for this one thing that happens to be uh, a really bad thing that we're watching them do right right and of course spoilers again i think i'm already said this but you know harry wasn't killed by any of them 
Yeah, he had like a heart attack and died or something. Yeah, yeah, it was he was totally, hit on the head twice, um, and uh, which was a might have contributed it, to it, I guess. But you know, in the context of the story, like dying of a heart attack is basically your natural causes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works. It works. Also, I find it hilarious that in 1955, Hitchcock was trying to prove that bridge humor could sell in America, because you know, nowadays, 50, 60 years later. British humor is pretty popular here. It's yeah, it's 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 a pretty common genre of comedy to watch. Um, I mean, who knows all the lines to uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? A right? ton of ton of Americans <laughs> know all the lines to that movie. Right, that is Incredibly. like epitomal British humor. Incredibly popular over here, and it's nice to think that Hitchcock was uh, one of the first people to try to get it popular over here and i don't think the trouble with harry was ever a huge success in the u.s but it was one of hitchcock's favorite uh movies yeah um, it was actually more popular than expected in france uh truffaut said it was only expected to run for like a couple of weeks but it ran for like two months to packed houses so uh that's a really interesting point about the film and i think that it holds up like i'm surprised that i haven't heard about this or seen it before now because i think it holds up with arsenic and old lace and bringing up baby and some of these other uh, screwball comedies that we've watched before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. again that truffaut putting words in your ears <laughs> exactly oh right and before i forget uh i just want to mention the cameo for the trouble with harry real quick um at 22 minutes and 14 seconds the man walking past the limo of the rich man outside is Alfred Hitchcock, um, which I didn't notice. I had to look that up. Um, yeah, I did not notice that one at all. Just because like, it's odd to have a random person walk by in this town in the middle of nowhere where no one is walking by. Right. Um, you know all the characters in this town, basically. Right, right. There, there are no extras um, except for Alfred Hitchcock. So that's that's interesting anyway that's the cameo for the trouble with harry uh let's move on to our final film of the day one of jonathan's favorite films of all times i like this movie a lot too but not quite the same way that jonathan does um so why don't you explain the plot of vertigo from 1958 for us jonathan and try not to leave our heads spinning all right i will try uh and i'm just gonna kind of skim through the uh the plot again because there's so much kind of packed into this movie that we'll have to uh to get into um again it's kind of the epitomal hitchcock film where he takes all of the themes and character developments and stuff that he likes to play with packs them into one film and then breaks them and resurrects them all in the space of one uh movie and it's on the 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 top of the bfi's 50 best films of all time list for a reason um so spoilers though for this film if you have not seen it go watch it and uh come back in four three two so we start off vertigo um with a police chase and jimmy stewart is running with the other police trying to catch this guy something's going on we don't know it doesn't matter uh jimmy stewart misses a jump they're all jumping over rooftops and he's left hanging by a gutter and uh, he looks down and is really far and we get a classic shot that we'll definitely talk about in a little bit, uh, which is now called the vertigo shot, basically where it looks like the floor of, uh, the, you know, the ground is moving away from him. Uh, 
and one of the other policemen comes back and uh, tries to help him up. He's like, give me your hand, give me your hand. But he can't. He's terrified, kind of like frozen. And uh, the other policeman who's on this steep roof ends up falling off to his death, uh, which, uh, you know, is obviously a little bit traumatizing. And that's kind of our little prologue. Uh, and then we end up with Jimmy Stewart and uh, a girl named Midge in this very yellow apartment room. And uh, he's playing with a cane, balancing it around, and they have a little bit of conversation about him trying to get over his vertigo, um, which he has after that incident. Um, he had he like stands on a stepladder and stuff like that. We see him faint, so we know that this is a real condition. And then uh, we know that they've, they kind of go back for a long time. They used to be engaged and all that. But he's like, do you ever remember this guy uh, from back in the school days? And she's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't really know. He's like... Well, he uh, he called me up and he needs my help. Um, so I'll go check out, see what he wants, even though I'm retired from detectiving and stuff like that. Detectiving, my favorite verb. <laughs> anyway, we go uh, to this meeting that Scotty has with an old schoolmate who tells him this really crazy story about how uh, he thinks that his wife is possessed with the spirit of her great grandmother, who ended up committing suicide. And we don't learn all this right away. We kind of unravel it a little bit through the story. Um, and he wants to know what his wife is doing all day because he thinks that she's in danger of committing suicide like her great-grandmother did. And she has these spells where she blacks out and does things that she doesn't remember and stuff like that. Um, and so Jimmy Stewart is reluctant, but uh, he ends up being convinced to follow the wife around. And so he does, and he they go to these very uh, specific places. There's a grave site and a specific grave and a museum where she looks at a painting um, where the woman in the painting has the same hairstyle and flowers and stuff. And uh, she goes to a hotel room and then goes to Golden Gate Bridge. And there are a couple days of her, of him following her around and stuff like that. And, you know, just kind of nothing really interesting happening until they go to the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, she jumps into the water uh, and he fishes her out, brings her back to his apartment. And then they start to have this conversation and <clears throat> uh, she does not remember any of this. And there's actually a moment that I should have mentioned beforehand where before he agrees to take the job, uh, the guy's like, here, just just come with us. We're going to have dinner at this place called Ernie's today. And uh, so we're going to you can see her there and then you'll know who you're following and all this kind of stuff. And the, the shot that uh, Hitchcock uses when Jimmy Stewart first sees her, her name is Madeline, um, is just very like highlighted. Literally, <laughs> Hitchcock does this really soft effect and Ernie's this bar is like very red. Um, and it's literally and I've mentioned this before, but it reminds me of a shot in a silent film when we would close up on a character's face and the background would be an entirely solid color and it'd be a very soft filter and stuff on it. And it's just really over exaggerated. And Hitchcock brings this into kind of like the modern day for this uh, introduction shot. So we're already seeing that it's a little bit of this connection at first sight thing with Jimmy Stewart. Oh yeah. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of forced exaggerated lighting throughout Vertigo. It's very, very avant-garde. There's a lot of very specific and yeah. intentional. Yeah, yeah. It's very um, conscious storytelling. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, like I said last week, there you can feel the filmmaking in Hitchcock films. He's not going for cinema verite by any stretch of the imagination. So now that these two characters have met and uh, 
Jimmy Stewart is not telling her that he is following her. He's just like, oh, no, I was just kind of out and about and all this kind of stuff. So then they end up meeting again and wandering around the city uh, intentionally together this time. And so after a couple more days of this, uh, there's this moment where Jimmy Stewart is realizing that, you know, she is going to all these places that her great grandmother did and uh, is very important. And so he's like, we need to go to all these places and then you'll be free of whatever this thing is in your mind because he's not convinced that she's possessed. And so they go to this old church and then she kind of has this moment where she kind of snaps. And through this, like they've definitely fallen in love and all that kind of stuff. And she runs up to the bell tower after saying something like it wasn't supposed to happen this way. I must go. I must and Jimmy Stewart tries to follow her up the bell tower, but his vertigo prevents him. And then we have the really famous vertigo shot down the stairwell. Uh, and all the stairs are kind of stretching and, and doing this really weird uh, distance effect that we'll go into more specifically later. And so since he cannot make it all the way up, she ends up casting herself down from the roof uh, and dying basically on a, a lower tier of the roof. And... Then we have this uh, sequence of, well, first of all, a court scene where they basically prove that uh, Jimmy Stewart didn't do it in this really like condescending court scene. Yeah, where the judge like, is a real dick. <laughs> yeah, they're like, uh, you know, he he should have been more careful after she tried to kill herself the first time, but we can't blame him for his inadequacies and what a terrible person he is. And you're just like, whoa, wait, what? Can yeah. you I mean, of be course, a little objective? Of course, the judge has to be a dick in this scene because mm-hmm. he has to he has to say all of the shortcomings that Jimmy Stewart's character is feeling in that scene because if Jimmy Stewart's character said them, it would feel forced. But having right. to ha- have Jimmy Stewart's character on public display and the judge describes his moral collapse in the wake of this tragedy, that's really effective um, yeah. to us as an audience. And plus, like, it makes us sympathize uh, and empathize with Jimmy Stewart, which is good considering what he's about <laughs> to do. Right. So after this, though, he has this nightmare in this really fantastical, partially animated uh, dream sequence that, if possible, is even more out there than Salvador Dali's dream sequence from Spellbound. And... Uh, basically goes into like a little coma and he goes to uh he's in i don't know what it is like a hospital or a rest home or something um where midge is trying to help him with mozart get back uh to his normal mental state but he's just kind of like like a zombie in a chair in the corner uh and then the doctor throws out um our favorite uh, little guilt complex term but it actually makes sense here because you know he feels responsible for her death even though you know it's kind of his mental uh, instability that caused it and all that kind of stuff. The, the psychology is not dwelled upon a lot. It's kind of, uh, implied throughout this story, but it is not spellbound level in your face. Um, and then we kind of start another story and for a while it feels strange because after he gets, uh, better quote unquote, after this, uh, little melancholia, uh, spell, he is kind of walking around, going to all the places that uh, him and um, Madeline went and uh, basically not doing himself any favors, uh, trying to feel better. And at some point he sees this woman who looks a lot like uh, Madeline and he becomes infatuated with her. She looks very different. Madeline had like 
bleach blonde hair, like almost white. And uh, this this woman that he sees on the street is a redhead. Um, and he ends up like stalking her to her room uh, and then convinces her to go out with him. Kind of has this little sob story kind of thing. Very aggressive. Very aggressive, but also kind of sympathetic because we, we know like where he's coming from. Uh, and she kind of catches on too until we learn that she is Madeline. Dun, dun, dun. This is like halfway through the movie too. Yeah, like, this is just... almost exactly halfway through the movie. I think his nightmare is halfway through the movie. And then this is uh, like 15 minutes after that. And so she, after he leaves this first time, she starts writing this note that we, the audience, get to hear what she was going to write, which is something along the lines of, I'm so sorry I had to do this to you. This was all uh, his plan. The The other guy from the beginning of the movie who hired him and then skipped town after the whole thing happened. So now we know that it, he was plotting to kill his wife and using Jimmy Stewart as a patsy to get away with it. That's not even important in this movie, honestly. Like, that is a backdrop Normally, Hitchcock would dwell on, you know, what happens to the bad guy and how did all this go down? But it's really just a character study of Jimmy Stewart with that as the background. And so she's like, you know, if I were strong enough, I would stay and try and make you love me for who I am and not who he made me pretend to be. Um, and then by the time she finishes writing it, she decides that she does have the courage to do that. So she crumples it up and uh, decides to go out with Jimmy Stewart and basically go along with whatever it is, pretend that she doesn't know what he's talking about and, uh, and try to make him love her for who she is. And then she realizes that, uh, as they are hanging out, Jimmy Stewart begins to, uh, do things like buy her clothes that look exactly like Madeline's did. And he wants her to change her hair and all this stuff. And she knows that, um, well, we know that she knows <laughs> that uh, he's basically making her into who she was already pretending to be. Uh, again, so many layers going on here. Um, and she's resisting this. And he ends up, you know, basically just through persistence, transforming her back into the facade that she had uh, until he eventually figures out what happened Um figures it out through uh, a piece of jewelry that Madeline had that he did not buy for uh, this new woman whose name is uh, Judy. So then he doesn't let it on and he carries her back to the uh, bell tower and drags her up uh, and she meets an unfavorable end and it's just a very tragic story all around. Again, I already warned you about spoilers, so go watch this movie. But as my very long-winded explanation probably alluded there's a lot of stuff to unpack so let's uh let's get into it right right um and before we before we get into the meaty stuff let's talk about um the cameo just to kind of get it out of the way much like hitchcock likes to do get it out of the way early in the film and then uh, you don't have to worry about people looking for it later on anyway uh the cameo comes at 11 minutes and 40 seconds into the film where uh, Hitchcock is walking down the street with an instrument case, I believe it's a trumpet case specifically, um, in front of the dockyard where um, Jimmy Stewart's friend who hires him for this job uh, works. So you, you can see him there. If you're interested in going and finding it, he will be there. All right, so about the story itself, let's just start there because we already mentioned... Um, 
you know, about the adaptations and things that Hitchcock changed, which this one has a very specific instance. And that is the fact that apparently in the book, you don't learn that uh, Judy and Madeline are the same woman until the very end. And Hitchcock decided to give it away in the middle, as uh, as we already pointed out. And very basically everyone. Decision. Yeah. And basically everyone around him was like, what are you doing? You just gave it away. What is there to what is there to look forward to? And he's like, well, OK, so this is Hitchcock's rationale is that basically um, he he puts it in this this uh, context of a child listening to a story from his mother and asking the question, what happens next? What's going to happen next? And he felt that in the book, if you don't know that she is the same woman, there's really not a lot of what happens next. It just kind of feels like another story, like, OK, he's falling in love with another woman, trying to turn her into someone that she's not. And she's resisting just for whatever reason, like she could make her hair white. Like, what does it matter to her? But knowing that this is an identity that she's trying to run away from and that's not really her, but that she had occupied for a while raises the stakes so much more and then it's like okay what happens next what what is she gonna do knowing what uh what he's doing and what is he gonna do not knowing that she is the same person that he's trying to turn her into uh and so it, it just again going back to like north by northwest and the way that hitchcock reveals information to the audience he's so good at just like giving us enough to keep us going, to keep us wondering what's happening next uh, and not just like give us this shocking moment at the end. But he takes that one shocking moment at the end of the book where you're like, oh, my gosh, it was the same woman. And then you go on with your day and he puts it in the middle and you're like, oh, my gosh, is the same woman. How mm -hmm. is that going to work? And then he drags it out for another hour because, again, it's right in the middle of the movie. Um, and it's it's just so perfectly placed and timed. Right, right. And you have to, especially when you're talking about suspense, you have to take into consideration where the audience is in relation to your characters. And in this case, specifically the protagonist. So are they on the same page as the characters? Are they ahead of the characters? Or are they behind the characters? And when they are ahead of the characters, you have, um, you have a storytelling term called dramatic irony, where the audience knows something that the character doesn't. Um, Hitchcock is very good at that. It's a great way to create suspense. Um, you know, it's the difference between um, seeing a conversation between two characters where we see there's a bomb under the table and we see that neither of the characters know that the bomb is under the table and ticking. Right. Um, then there's a lot of suspense in that scene versus just a scene where two people are talking at a table and then suddenly the table explodes. Like, yeah, right. that's shocking. That's a, that's a twist, but for uh, like a couple seconds, but for like a couple seconds, whereas like if you show it beforehand, you get so much more out of that scene. It's so wonderful. And then it does this thing like we talked about with the trouble with Harry, where uh, the way that Hitchcock always gives that, um, you know, the bomb under the table example is if you're just having this conversation about baseball or something and then it's, you know, it's really boring until the table explodes. But if we know that the table is going to explode, then we're like, why are you talking about baseball? You are about to die. Right. So it turns this converse, this like completely meaningless thing uh, into something different because the visual aspect or the you know what the audience knows about the scene is different than what the characters are talking about in the scene and that keeps us going yeah yeah exactly and it's it's um it, you, you essentially plant this bomb underneath jimmy stewart 
um yeah halfway, a big one <laughs> half halfway through the film and you wonder you you just wonder what's going to happen when he explodes what's what's going to happen when that bomb goes off in his face um and you do get to see that at the end um but but before we we jump into the ending because the actual ending of the book besides the moving of the um the twist from the end to the mill is, is slightly different how jimmy stewart reacts to the information um we uh i do want to just kind of make a larger point about twist endings because people seem to really love twist endings they they seem to really love shocks because they really they really shock them they really surprise them right but it, i don't know i don't think a a cheap or um a, a twist ending measures up to a suspenseful film uh to the same extent And it definitely depends. Like there are ways to do the twist ending, but it's it's a give and take. You know, it's kind of like an opportunity cost. Like, is this twist ending good enough to land the film? Like, is landing the film right there better than drawing out the suspense? Like, if we can take that ending and maybe give up a twist at the end, but add an hour of suspense, you know, it's all it's a give and take. Yeah. Yeah, because that suspense is go- is what's going to um, sit with you. It's not going to be it's not going to be the anecdote you tell your friends, but it's what's going to sit with you and make you want to go watch a movie again. Um, and I think that's part of what makes Vertigo so popular. But yeah, ever since the Sixth Sense came out, everybody's uh, wants to put a twist ending in whatever they make, and half the time it's just kind of feels like you're cheating the audience, or um, it can turn into a whole mess can turn yeah. into a whole mess and it can subvert the suspense you were trying to build um in your film and the tension you were trying to build in your film and we talked about either last time or the time beforehand how um a good film and a su- especially suspense film and you could really argue that any film is a suspense film in the same way that any film is a mystery film um works on this principle of building tension and then releasing it and then building tension and then releasing it um and you know a good twist ending is the release um but a good good suspense build is the build up to it and the thing that makes the release so fun is a good sus- suspense build up and if you sacrifice that build up in 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 exchange for a really good uh twist ending then or or a really shocking twist ending um, then maybe you lose something in the exchange. Anyway, yeah. that's my and mini rant. And it can rant. be done. You've got, you've got the sixth sense, which the twist ending makes the rewatch more enjoyable in a different way. So that actually gives another value to the movie mm-hmm. after that first watch. And then there are other instances of um, an ending that almost increases the suspense of the movie. So if you take like Inception, people are going to be debating the end of a set of Inception uh, forever, basically, because uh, Nolan gives you that suspense and never relieves it, even at the end of the film. So it's almost, uh, you know, more suspenseful once you've left with that. I mean, it's almost like a pseudo twist. It's not even a full twist because we don't know. Um, and so that's that's an interesting, uh, excuse the pun, twist on this idea of a twist ending. So again, there are ways to do it, but it's not like something that you should be dying to put at the end of your movie because sometimes it can be better served elsewhere 
Right, right. All right, so let's talk about the the uh, the slight change in the ending of Vertigo. And quick spoiler warning, um, you guys are going to uh, not like it if you uh, if you don't want spoilers. So go watch a movie real quick. Okay, you good? Okay, come, welcome back. Um, so originally, at the end of the movie, when the twist happens, end of the book, where the twist happens and Jimmy Stewart's character finds out that... Um, Judy is Madeline, and Madeline is Judy. Um, he goes crazy and uh, kills Madeline. He strangles her in the book, and that is changed in the uh, in the movie slightly, so that Judy isn't killed by Scotty, but she does still die. She is shocked yeah. right out that window. Not outright. And it's really a great moment because by since we're none. doing spoilers, yeah. There's a moment where they're at the top of the bell tower and he's like, I made it. I made it. And she's like, now you can love me. You know the truth. I'm sorry I hid it from you. He's like, no, no, it's too late. It's too late. And then we're, I mean, this is a night scene. This is a very dark scene. And uh, this nun comes up the stairs and in such Hitchcockian fashion, she's completely silhouetted and basically looks like the Grim Reaper, literally. And she walks forward and uh Judy, uh yeah Judy is so startled that she falls out the window um and then the nun comes forward and you're like oh my gosh yeah yeah no i've always actually debated what was going on in that last scene uh to myself i i've never 100% figured it out i think i'm trying to put symbols into things that don't aren't supposed to have symbols on them and trying to say that none represents us and such when it, it's just a nun scaring a woman out the window where. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's like at least the contrast of her coming up and looking like the Grim Reaper, like an angel of death. And then she's, you know, a nun who's supposed to be this uh, this bringer of hope and stuff like that. So Hitchcock is just kind of playing and reversing uh, stereotypes yeah, and at the very end, we can say that at least Scotty's gotten over his hangups. Although, who the heck knows what kind of hangups he has after this? <laughs> I know, um, right? Twice. Yeah, he's gotten over his his um. Actually, three times. Man, that guy's gonna be so messed up. Well, he got over his what? He got over his vertigo hangup at the That's end of true. the movie. He got over his Madeline hangup by the end of the movie. Um, and then was he gonna have like a Judy hangup now? <laughs> yeah he's gonna make make some other woman have red hair and uh wear green instead of gray yeah just for a little um, while and then he's going to make them transform them into madeline right he's going to but, get deeper and deeper every every time <laughs> speaking of inception and they they all but, go they all go by defenestration <laughs> exactly so what we got to talk about though is our anti-hero which is jimmy stewart because that's what this podcast is about um, and the interesting thing, so this is like, this is your epitomal anti-hero, basically. Uh, we're in a neo-noir film. We've got someone making very unheroic choices. But the interesting thing is that this isn't like, um, uh, like a cop story or something where we start off with a character who is kind of morally ambiguous. Like, we start off with the everyman. We start off with Jimmy Stewart being very sympathetic and likable. We understand him. You know, he is George Bailey pretty much, uh, at the beginning of this movie. And then we just watch him like just decline by degrees into this obsession and, 
basically what Hitchcock even describes as like this necrophilia, this obsession with a loved dead one and wanting to bring her back to life and love her again. And it's just, you know, maddening to watch because it's so slow. Hitchcock takes two hours and just brings us into this pit of obsession. Um, and, and it's just like, again, the, the, the epitomal way of taking your character and just driving him farther and farther down this road. And he keeps making these decisions that are detrimental to himself and to Judy. Um, and we're not even following the real bad guy, which is that guy who hired him. He hey, just he kind just of like goes off into the end. <laughs> he, he sets up uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, like he just pushes over the little uh, snowball at the top of the hill and isn't even there by the time it gets to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. The censorship board did not like that. They wanted a scene towards the end where Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak were um, uh, were listening to a radio about uh, that guy being um, almost caught by the police and they're hot on his trail, um, which would not have worked. Let, it would have felt very forced. It yeah. would have felt incredibly forced. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is already 1958. The censorship board was starting to lose its power. Um, and Hitchcock was Hitchcock, and he just would, went ahead and did not do it. Um, and as we we now know, Vertigo is one of the films that he retained the rights to afterwards. Um, so so he kind of got away with doing his thing, and, you know, thank, thank gosh he did. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a film that he always had a um, a liking for personally, even though, like I said, it did not do very well um, in the box office when it was released. But I can imagine his, 1950s um, American <laughs> audiences being very confused by this. Yeah. But it's 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 a uh, it's something that if you kind of take a step back and look at it almost at a at a meta level, um, there is this almost connection that you can make between uh the way that scotty obsessively turns judy into this image of what he wants her to be and the way that judy allows herself uh by degrees to be transformed in order to get his love no matter what at first she wants him to love her for who she is but eventually she's just like what do i have to do to make you love me and if it's becoming someone else then fine i'll do it um, and if you look at that in relationship to a director and the actors, there's kind of a similar thing, like we talked about with the way that Hitchcock would, uh, you know, take an actress and mold her into who he wanted her to be. And even specifically to this film, Kim Novak is not the actress that Alfred Hitchcock wanted to play this role. And he was not very satisfied with her performance afterwards. He thought it was kind of bland, uh, even though pretty much everyone who watches this film is like, what are you talking about? She's perfect. Like she has all the right qualities needed for this. Um, but even Kim Novak has said in interviews afterwards that she identifies with uh, Judy and this this thing where she was a fresh actress to Hollywood. And, you know, at this point, Hitchcock is literally at the peak of his career and she was willing to do whatever in order to uh, be accepted by him, uh, you know, the great the great Alfred Hitchcock. And he molded her into this idea of, um, you know, the female character that he wanted, which is something that we could talk about now, which is uh, all of the female roles that go into this, because it's so interesting to watch. So the things that we've already set up 
if you didn't hear last week, especially in terms of uh, women, um, is, you know, we typically have our blonde haired love interest, our darker haired um, kind of rival character who rivals the blonde love interest for the attention of the main character and a mother. And though we don't really have a mother in this film, um, some of the women kind of act motherly towards Jimmy Stewart. But what we do have is Midge, who is a blonde, kind of traditional Hitchcocky and blonde at the beginning. And we know that they used to be engaged and uh, she's set up as a love interest from the very beginning. And that continues. Uh, and then we meet um, uh, Madeline, who, as I said, is bleach blonde, almost white hair, which makes her, which makes Midge, the blonde, the darker haired rival to Madeline, whom Jimmy Stewart ends up actually falling in love with, um, which is really interesting. And then the fact that uh, Madeline dies and Judy comes along and Judy is a redhead, so now she is our darker-haired character. And Judy wants Jimmy Stewart's love. But Judy is Madeline, so Judy becomes the darker-haired rival to herself uh, because Jimmy Stewart is in love with a different version of herself. And it's just like, again, so many things that Hitchcock is doing here and taking his own tropes that he made. Like, this this thing with the women and the different colored hair like is not a thing in anyone else's movies except Hitchcock's. And he's taking his own thing and breaking it and then doing it again in the same way that, uh, you know, Madeline is coming along and dying and then being remade again. And it's just like, ah, there's so much stuff going on here. Yeah. Yeah. So when I talked about in the, uh, the intro to this episode, this being maybe the best crafted of the Hitchcock, um, films, the most intricately put together, you know, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Um, or this is a guy at the top of his craft who's been doing this for a while, who has the experience, who has the uh, the the power in the industry to get stuff done, and he just does it all in this movie. And uh, wow, is it complicated? You know, even trying to suss out the morality as as stuff goes downhill in the um, huh, that's actually a small pun because um, Hitchcock <laughs> made a movie called Downhill. Anyway. Um, and the fact that vertigo is, would not uh, make you very happy if you're going downhill? No, no, it would not. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, as, as the characters decline morally over the back half of the film into these like emotional messes, um, you know, you get you. So you understand that what's going on is wrong and that what be, that they are doing is wrong. But at the same time, like you can find these weird little justifications for it as you're going through. Um, and the fact that again, we're setting up Jimmy Stewart as the every man. So we're, we identify mm -hmm. him with the begin at the beginning. We identify with him and then we we're like half trying building empathy for him. And then we're trying to just keep that connection in any way that we can by the end. Uh, and it gets harder and harder and harder. Yeah. We're, we're already pretty committed to liking him. And then suddenly he starts doing all these awful things and then and it's Jimmy Stewart, which I think Hitchcock uses to his advantage oh, here sure. because Jimmy Stewart is one of those people that when you put him on screen, we're going to like him just because right. we because of the brand that Jimmy Stewart is. Right, right. And, and he's doing all these awful things. And you're, you want to say all these things are awful because they are awful because he believes that this is a different girl, but it isn't a different girl. And she is essentially greenlighting all these decisions eventually at a lot of times after a lot yeah, of pressure. Yeah, because she knows what's going on. But she knows and what's going on and she's she's willingly going along with this 
at the same time. So is what he's doing wrong? Yes, no, maybe. And there's another element at the beginning of Jimmy Stewart just falling in love with her, uh, knowing that she is this other man's wife. But then she isn't this other man's wife because she's a hired actress portraying this other man's wife. So, you know, there's <laughs> again, like, like you're saying with the morality, like everything has these layers that it's so hard to just get through. And is why critics have been just like, you know, when it came out, everyone was like, what the heck did I just watch? But as critics have been just thinking through this movie, they're like, oh, my gosh, how much did he pack into this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is, it is a twisted up mess. That is fascinating to watch. And, you know, it's not one of these. And a lot of Hitchcock's films are like this. It's one of these films that isn't. Um, isn't it, it, I wouldn't, it's not a message film. There's no like message to take home from it. It's a, it's yeah, just, it's a uh, it's character just analysis. An incredibly well told story. And in, I, in again, kind of kind the of, same way that Lawrence of Arabia is where you just kind of follow lawrence down this this rabbit hole of identity crisis um it's it's kind of like that it's just the, one of these films that you're going on this journey of seeing what happens to this character there's no aesop's fables like and that's why you shouldn't be friends with a bad person yeah yeah and that's one of those things that is is just pounded into you in um in film school these days is that it, especially in writing classes in film school um if you're before you write, what are you trying to say? What is what is your theme? What is your message? What are you trying? What are you trying to say to the audience? Well, that's um, not to say like there is a theme. Like there is. Oh yeah, this... yeah. Theme, theme, and message are different things. You're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's an incredibly thematic film, even if it doesn't tell you you know what to take away from it. Like you do come away with you know it's basically a what not to do kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. Even if it doesn't tell you what to do, it tells you what not to do. If you find yourself in any of these following situations, <laughs> stop, Do not. turn around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of the technical stuff in this film. I think we I already haven't even got to color. The, oh, my gosh. I think I've, I think I've already mentioned color. that some of the lighting is forced in a way. Uh, you mentioned when he, uh, he first sees uh, Madeline in the restaurant. Um, the line gets really bright. There is a moment where... Um, they're in the shop. They're in the shop listening to the history of um, San Francisco and this woman Carlotta, who Madeline is related to, and her story. And the the lighting gets pretty dark during that. The sun goes down during that scene. Yeah, right? and then whether like, whether in real life or through the lighting, but yeah, that that always stands out to me. Yeah, that, that's, that one's pretty crazy. There's, um, I think the one of the, the blur best filters examples. at the cemetery. Yeah, one of the best examples. Yeah, there's a lot of diffusion. There's a lot of blur in this film. Um, the Madeline's or not Madeline, Judy's same person. Whatever, Judy's <laughs> um, Judy's apartment in the hotel is first of all beautifully lit by this green neon sign that's right outside. Um, and real quick before I get into this, Jonathan, did you know that that hotel is still around? It's named the Hotel Vertigo, and what they changed the name? Yeah. Um, and fairly recently, they changed the name in like 2009. Um, That's insane. And the, that Madeline's room is, while still maintained, almost the exact same as it was. Um, That's amazing. Anyway, there's beautiful light in the in the room. The green neon sign 
outside gives this wonderful, wonderful, unique wash that reminds me of a slightly bluer version of the greens we saw in To Catch a Thief. Um, but there's this wonderful scene where um, Judy emerges fully transformed into Madeline from her closet after fixing her hair the complete correct way that Jimmy Stewart remembered it on Madeline. Um, and as she steps out, she's like in this beam of ultralight that is yeah. on top of her, on top of like this blur filter. It's like she's like this glowing celestial being stepping out of um, stepping out of this closet. It is just bonkers to see it. It's not diegetic in the least, not motivated at all other than by what Jimmy the Stewart's story. character is feeling in that moment when, when yeah. he sees her. Um, and that's enough because we've already seen so many crazy things in uh in this movie including the nightmare scene which is nuts um, right so so we buy it we buy it as long as the movie is consistent with itself it's okay yeah and i mean just aside from like just the starkness of the colors all the colors have a meaning so one of the things about this movie is that this is neo-noir uh not i don't probably not the first neo-noir but maybe the epitome of neo-noir and we've talked about this before like uh with old boy specifically we talked a lot about the colors and how purple is very specifically used and all these different colors and every basically every character in this movie has a color associated with them so the bad guy uh is associated with red. His office is all red. And when we go to Ernie's at the beginning, it's all red. Um, and Madeline's color is green and gray. When we see her in the, um, at Ernie's, she's wearing a green shawl and, uh, that's like the opposite color of red. So that stands out first of all, right away. And then, like you said, uh, when we meet Judy, when we meet her for the first time, she's wearing all green. And her apartment is flooded with this green light at all times. And green is often associated with like a death and like a sickly color. And that goes into these themes, again, which Hitchcock himself uh, has talked about of like this necrophilia kind of an aspect, um, which is really interesting that it, it like he's bringing that in like at the beginning. Her car is green at the beginning of the film. Um, and... Uh, so once Scotty kind of gets sucked into this whole story, his color starts to become red too. And there's this great moment when uh, he fishes Madeline out of the bay and they're sitting in his living room and she's wearing his red robe and he's wearing a green sweater and they've switched colors because they're connecting now. Uh, and Midge's color the whole time is yellow because her apartment is very yellow. Although every time we go to her apartment, it is a darker time in the day until the very last time that, well, not, I'm sorry, not the last time that we see her, but one of the last times that we see her, she's wearing a red shirt because she is trying to, uh, win Johnny's affections. Johnny, Scotty, Jimmy Stewart's character has, uh, like several names that are not related, <laughs> um, but she she's basically painted herself like this painting that we talked about before, uh, trying to transform herself into what Scotty wants, which is what Scotty ends up doing to Judy. But he doesn't accept it from Midge. And she's wearing red um, at that moment, which is, again, trying to connect with him. Um, and then whenever he goes into this melancholia spell, he's in the hospital and everything is blue. He's wearing a blue sweater. There's blue around and uh, Midge is there and she has these pink flowers that 
just like pop in that room. But all of these colors are being so specifically used and switched and placed in every scene uh, just to really like complete everything. Like, again, this is one of the things I talk about with uh, neo-noir films is if you turn the sound off, you can follow the story just by watching the colors. Um, and that's one of the great things about color film, because I love black and white a lot, especially for noir films. But the way to use color in noir films is like this colors that carry the theme in every single scene. And it's just like perfectly done in vertigo. Right, right. I mean, there's there's plenty of movies out there, even really good movies that um, just shoot in color stock because that's that that's what they have. That's like the standard yeah. of the day. Um, but nothing's ever really done with color um outside of like like no um nothing that screams uh director involvement or cross-departmental collaboration right. like nothing that was done on purpose just stuff that was done uh for the sake of design in one single scene but, but, but one of the modern directors who does now. this really well is uh wes anderson and alex can probably speak to that more than i can but oh gosh uh, yes. just because of wes anderson's uh, specific mise-en-scene in all of his movies, uh, you know, color plays into that. And I'm sure that that is something that he pulled a lot from Hitchcock and specifically Vertigo because of just how well it's used here. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of Vertigo in a lot of his movies. There's a lot of, um, shockingly enough, there's a lot of Torn Curtain in one of his movies. There's like a scene straight from Torn Curtain in uh, the Grand Budapest mm. Hotel. And all of all of Wes Anderson's films are actually like color coded, like the Grand Budapest is pink. Um, the Fantastic Mr. Fox is orange and uh, the Life Aquatic is blue. The Jog Jilling Limited is yellow. Um, the Royal Tenenbaums is red. I could go all day anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, anyway, I also love color. Like I said before, like this is what I do. This is my job. I am a colorist. Um and color can be used quite significantly to uh, denote things. Um, and and we should mention that while we talk about it, it sounds like these characters are choosing these clothes um, consciously and on purpose. Um, but that's not, that's not really what we're saying or what the story is trying to say. Um, you shouldn't really be, no, in theory, you shouldn't be noticing the color during the uh during the watching of the movie you shouldn't especially the first watch it. yeah yeah especially on the first watch you shouldn't be like wow all of the bad guys were dressed in red um it should be this subtle thing that connects um everything else that you see over the course of the film um because that's the art that that's part of the art of visual storytelling you can get so much information into somebody's eye in just one frame yeah it's a subconscious clue that you yeah you you cue these things in um so that they're connected and the next time you see such and such a color or such and such a symbol or such and such a person you associate all those other things that you've seen with them um that that it's almost the same concept of like if you chew um, cinnamon gum while you study and then you chew cinnamon gum while you take the test you'll do better on the test um except much much more fun all <laughs> right um and another thing just like as long as we're talking about like the mise-en-scene and the and the the colors and stuff uh is just like the the way that these sets are built because again all of these sets are like 
you know, Hollywood sets, everything is built and populated. Um, and one of the things that Hitchcock talks about a lot is this fact that uh, he doesn't like art designers very much because he feels like they just kind of come in they put a bunch of stuff in the room that they think looks good and then their their job is done. But he's really interested in making sure every room feels like the characters live there. So, for example, in The Birds, uh, for the school teacher's um, uh, little house slash inn thing, um, he had a, a photographer basically go to the school teacher's house in Bodega Bay, where the story takes place, and a school teacher's house in San Francisco, because that's where the school teacher is from, and mix them. And so it was a combination of those two things, like actual people's uh, uh, how, like living spaces. And the same thing with, um, with Vertigo, where he would go to an actual San Francisco detective's apartment and then kind of model Scotty's apartment after that. Um, and even he would do this with uh, with characters and stuff. So, for example, in a film that we're not talking about, but the the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, for a, a pretty small character, honestly, this ambassador character, they kept sending, uh, the casting agency would send him all these people. They, they all had, like, little mustaches and facial hair and stuff, and he would ask, like, so what have you done? And like, oh, well, I played Count So-and-So, and I played, like, all these government characters, basically, like, character actors, and because, you know, that was the look of an official. And then he was like, you know, just give me give me like a, a bunch of photos of actual uh, ambassadors and none of them had facial hair. And so he was like, OK, let's go with someone who looks like one of these like actual ambassador people. So there are a lot of these times when he would um, be very specific, even just in the logistics of what he's putting on the screen, which is just a little thing to throw in there. But uh, I think it's interesting that, you know, just going along with how intentional Hitchcock is about every single thing that is in his frames. It's an interesting appeal to realism from a man who is not associated with realism. Um, yeah. And I think and that, he, you know he goes I think off that's a great on these, point. He goes off on critics that he calls the quote plausibles all the time because these people who are like trying to poke holes in, uh, you know, plots and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's funny because uh, Truffaut in his introduction to the book says says that as much as Hitchcock kind of dismissed people who were too literal and logistic about his films, like there's very little in his films that is actually implausible because he was so specific about all those things. Yeah, yeah. You just have to make sense within the realm of your own film and you're good. You're good. And, and we talked about that with Spellbound um, last week. Like none of the, the, the psychotic psychology stuff makes sense to us where it doesn't I, need to <laughs> it doesn't need to it's good it's good and i'm sure he did research it sounds like mid-century stuff you know from other movies i've heard but even that i can't be an authority on so so i'm, I'm willing to let it work but but yeah no that's a great point that even even movies that take a more fantastical artistic pr approach are so rooted in um, real details that ground the the um, yeah flesh the world out right because you can only you can only take that grounding thing is important because you can only take the audience so far into fantasy before you lose them completely you need something for them to uh, jump off from something for them to um, hold on to and then go to the fantastical to the crazy, to the, um, 
Jimmy Stewart's head floating in a vortex. Um, <laughs> right. Of in the a scene world. that I feel like had uh, not a little bit of influence on 2001's little space uh, vortex. I'm so I'm really wondering what Jimmy Stewart thought of shooting that scene. Cause yeah, like, like basically just like things threw a fan in his face so his hair would go crazy, and then they cut his head off in post. Right, like everybody. So I mean, nowadays that that's not a shocking scene to film, whether you're using it for a vortex tunnel or a disembodied head or whatever. Um, but in the 1950s, that wasn't like standard fare. It wasn't like everybody was doing that. That was pretty unique. So. And Jimmy Stewart, after having spent a, a couple decades in Hollywood doing, you know, westerns and noirs and um, dramas and comedies and nothing with a floating head in it, I wonder what <laughs> he thought of suddenly having to do a floating head scene. But stuff with invisible rabbits. So maybe that's the gateway. Invisible rabbits to floating heads. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, that movie that Harvey really skated by on, like, almost no VFX, which was pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple like door openings and stuff like that. Um, anyway, let's move on to our overall notes. Um, let's start by just talking about like I think one of the points that we wanted to make this week is, you know, where you can find antiheroes. And they're not always just like the really dark and gritty kind of villainous protagonists. You know, sometimes they're just uh, they're just good people in a comedy film that are making bad decisions uh for comedic effect and um it's just something interesting that i hadn't really thought about until we were picking out movies and i was like you know what a lot of these screwball comedy characters uh are making you know legally and morally wrong decisions but we go along with it because it's hilarious how they keep bungling it up yeah so uh anti-heroes are very popular these days but it it can be hard um as somebody who's looking to write one, how to make an anti-hero um, engaging or interesting or how to make them likable, except characters don't really have to be likable. That's just one trait they can possibly have. Um, for instance, you know, in Vertigo, it's certainly a trait that Scotty has at the start of the film. He's, he's quite likable and charming and jovial. And by the end of the film, I don't think he's likable anymore. No. He's, he's tortured and crazy and obsessed and uh, near maniacal. Um, but, he, but the thing that keeps us involved with Scotty over the course of the film is that he's deeply empathetic. We, we, can, we can understand and relate to how he's feeling um, over the course of the film because he's a he, one he's a well-written character two we've seen him go through all the shit that he's had to go through and suffer for it um and and i think i made an earlier point about this the reason why he didn't just say it, it, it himself and explain all the trauma that happened to him in the wake of the first madeline's death um and the reason they had to have him in front of this room full of his peers with a judge um, criticizing him very harshly for all the things that he's done wrong and him sitting there and feel bad is to make him empathetic um, and to make him understandable. So we understand why. Or he's at least doing sympathetic if you've yeah. never been criticized by a judge before. Right, right. <laughs> at least sympathetic. Um, and that that sympathy, empathy, whatever, that relatability uh understandability 
is what makes an anti-hero engaging and what's it's what lets you um stick with them over the course of a film or a tv show um as i mentioned earlier so many tv shows are anti-hero based these days um or or like jonathan was talking about um they can be sympathetic and jovial they can be animated and fun to watch because anti-heroes are fundamentally interesting because they're they're flawed complicated characters that aren't bland they're um easier to understand maybe because we're all humans and we're all flawed deeply um in multiple ways so we relate very well to other flawed beings although i hope none of you are this flawed maybe you are (laughs) right um and again it's kind of a cautionary tale but we stick with it because if we picked up with um you know if we made madeline's death uh in the middle of the film our prologue like the uh little cop uh dying scene at the beginning if we made that the beginning and then we just watched jimmy stewart uh destroy judy's life we would have zero sympathy for him and so the fact that it's a slow burn you know hitchcock takes us from someone that we like and we identify with and then he takes us down one rung of okay he fell in love with a married woman and he takes us down another rung of okay he kind of caused her death because he was trying to be with her too much and then we take him down another rung where it's like okay he falls in love with this other woman he's trying to so he's just like slowly like taking us down but if he just like if we just jumped there you know we would just tune out right 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 and a lot of you know if you think about a lot of anti-hero narratives it's about kind of like this this slow downhill crawl of an anti-hero um or vice versa them seemingly trying to work their way back um but to, to think of the downhill examples a lot of a good modern example would be nightcrawler um and some of these are interesting in that they don't start off as you know they don't put us solidly on the uh, protagonist's side like we we are with scotty because in nightcrawler um you know he's he's the same person throughout he's the same terrible person throughout and we're just having to basically get these little glimpses to make us understand why he's doing what he's doing even if we never approve of it because yeah. that you know he's so curious that you want character. to see what happens next right exactly he's a pretty flat character but you know yeah it's the fact that we we understand all of his motivations even if we don't approve of the result of those there's a great lessons from the screenplay uh, video essay that i'll include in the description uh that talks through like how how that works and then you know there's others like uh, i already mentioned deadpool and logan and uh as you said in tv shows you have breaking bad and the sopranos um and so there are just these tons of examples and there's different ways of connecting with your character who's going to uh, distance themselves from any normal person throughout the course of the film. And you either have to start off by like giving us little things in order to identify or start off and make them completely identifiable and then take us down this path. Um, so it's really or in the case of one of these more comedic instances, you start off with them being very identifiable and then uh, just don't let anything get too serious in order to take them out of that Uh, because they could do as many bad things as possible. But if you keep 
like uh, a really light tone and you keep that contrast between what they're talking about, the way they're handling it and what they're actually doing. If you keep that contrast far enough apart, then we won't really care uh, all the way through. So uh, that's Deadpool. that's another thing to keep in mind. And of course, you have to remember that the people we're talking about now are anti-heroes. They are not setting out to cause... They're not antagonists. Yeah, they're not antagonists. They're not setting out to cause evil in the world. They are not setting out to um, uh, to to purposefully do harm for the sake of doing harm. If they do bad or if they do harm to people, it tends to be out of self-interest. And we see that very commonly. Um, like Scotty in Vertigo or um, or Deadpool in Deadpool. That, you know, the, the bad things they do uh, are out of selfish motivations or other motivations, but not necessarily evil for the sake of evil or for the sake of, you know, being psychotic. Um, that is tends to be reserved for villains. And of course, we mentioned there's a whole other category of anti-villains, but we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole during this series. We are talking about Hitchcock villains, which means talking about psychopaths oh, or and at least murderers. Yeah. one of the two um, and typically murderers and oddly enough two of our films for next week involve tennis players which is I find fascinating um, but Jonathan what are our three films for next week next week we have 1951's Strangers on a Train uh, where we'll be swapping some murders or trying to uh, we have 1954's Dial M for Murder and 1960, the ultimate Hitchcock villain, Psycho, with Norman Bates. Uh, and we get back into some female uh, character dynamics and lots of fun stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, twists so. in the middle of the film. <laughs> right, exactly. And birds. So that one, actually, yeah, the, the Psycho twist blew my mind the first time I saw it. And I didn't see this movie till college. Uh, I was very so, confused by it too. I was I am like, super like, I don't care what you hear about, about this film. Like you, you, you get. You're not ready for it. it. Yeah. 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 So that this should be fascinating. Um, fun fact. Uh, before we go, Jonathan, did you know that Dial in for Murder was shot in 3D? Yes, I did. 3D. Now you, well, now now the rest of you know it is not required <laughs> watching to watch it in 3D. In fact, I don't recommend that you watch it in 3D. But we um, do recommend 3D headphones when you listen to us next time. Yes, hear us in three dimensions. That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JSSatchel. And I'm at AltaGaringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya. This week's episode sponsored by the word <laughs> detectiving. Detectiving to detectivate. <laughs> I detectivate. You detectivate. He, she, it detectivates. This is the, the grammarlings now. The fake grammarlings. <laughs> oh, gosh. I hope not. That's like my <laughs> worst possible subject. <laughs> <laughs>